Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Before we begin, I encourage you, my listeners, to tune in to the previous three podcasts, where two of which um, I spoke to Dr. Dr. Saul Kasson about his new book called Duped, which centers around the topic of false confessions. In addition, um, my guests today were here with me before, so I want to reintroduce them. They are Johnny Hincapier, who was convicted of a crime he did not commit and served 25 years in prison. He was exonerated in 2015. And I also have his lawyers, Gabriel Harvis and Barry Fett, who filed a complaint on Johnny's behalf against the city and state of New York, and he was awarded $18 million. Mr. Harvis and Ms. Fett co-chair the Civil Rights Division at their law firm, uh, a name I can't pronounce, so <laughs> Barry will pronounce it for me. The firm is? Of course, Ellis Tarakis, Ellis Tarakis, and Panic. Not too Thank bad. You. <laughs> All right. And they both specialize in high profile cases of wrongful conviction. Welcome back to you all. All right. So we're going to begin today with uh, Johnny. Um, my question to you is how much faith did you have in the justice system the night of your arrest? And did the fact that you were innocent give you hope? that you would definitely be able to go home? Well, uh, as Gabe said earlier in the introduction on the onset of uh, your podcast, um, I was raised by my family by uh, having all the faith in the world when it came to uh, the police and being raised in New York City. Um, I had a few encounters where um, growing up in Queens, there was a, uh, uh, I think one or two attempts, somebody tried to um, burglarize my home and immediately we called the police. Um, so uh, I, I always had that connection, um, uh, uh, that, 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 that inculcation that my parents gave to me that, you know, if in need at any time you need to go to the police for anything, those are the ones you trust. So on the night of my arrest, um, I had a lot of faith in the police. You know, um, again, I had no idea why I was being brought into the police precinct, especially for what I was being told and what was happening to me. And, 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 and still, as a result, even after I was beat up, you know, something inside of me, you know, kept on saying, you know, what they're telling you is true. So, you know, as a young 18-year-old, um, confused and scared for my life, um, even though I didn't really understand what was taking place at the time, at the end of the day, um, I still had that faith in the system. I still had faith based on what my parents taught me. Sure. Um, um, I, I think if I would have had a different experience, if, pro if I probably would have been arrested before, um, if I probably had uh, 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 been wrongfully convicted before? Probably, yes. No, I, I would have never had any faith. But like Gabe said, I'd never been arrested in my life. I never had any contact with police officers at all. 
Um, so this was the very, very first time going inside a police station and, and the fact that this happened to me um, and uh, why it happened to me, uh, at the end of the day, I still had my faith in, 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 in the people that my parents told me to trust. Of as, course. Um, yeah. As far as, um, I, I believe you said, what kind of faith did I have and uh, what kept me well, that, that was my, I was going to ask you another question about faith in, in the system. What about once you were in prison? What was your belief then about knowing the system would w still work for you, knowing very well that you did not do this? That's a, that's a excellent question. Um, I, I totally lost faith in the system after my uh, wrongful conviction. Um, all of my appeals had been denied. All my appeals were exhausted. Um, so the only faith I, I had to turn to, as uh, Gabe said, being brought up as a God-fearing family and God-fearing person was to place my faith in God. And, um, and that was a very, very hard thing to do because in the environment that I was in, with, with my surroundings, and there was nobody that I can turn to. There was nobody that I can turn to to have faith in. You know, and when they lock you inside that cell and they turn off the lights and you're in an eight by 10 cell and you hear the door slam, you hear so much noise around you. Um, you know, at my age, I cried many, many, many nights. Um, and um, I cried out to God many, many, many times. And I, I never received an answer. I mean, at the end of the day, I did 25 years. It took 25 years in order to exonerate me. But... You know, I, I, I did held, held on to a thread of hope throughout all those years. My family um, um, were always there to support me and to reiterate the importance of having faith in God. Um, uh, and that was, that was us. That's, that's, that's how my family were raised. That's how they raised me. And, and, and even though uh, everything that I went through, um, you know, I, 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 I hung on to that. You know, there was no other reason for me uh, to tell myself, you know, everything else is not working for me. Why still not believe that something will happen uh, in your life by believing in God? And by believing in God and having that support with my mother is what helped me get through every single day while I was in prison that allowed me to focus on my innocence, that allowed me from day one even from day one, it was more of like of a reaction that took place because I was so scared that I wrote and took account of everything that was taking place. And I wrote everybody, even my attorneys. Um, I think that thread of hope in God is what allowed me to, to build that track record of what really took place in me where in the beginning, nobody believed in me at all. Right. Now, speaking of believing in you and, and faith and hope, you... You couldn't just have faith in God. There had to be somebody that you relied on to move this case forward and appeal this verdict that was untrue. Where where did you seek help um, and from whom on a you know legal basis when you first got into prison? And did you do it quickly or did you wait a while and say, you know, such is my life? Well, um, from the beginning, like I said, I, I wrote letters uh, to the attorney that came to visit me. 
while I was um, arrested, they came to visit me in the court behind the, um, uh, the, the, the cells in the courthouse. He wrote me, he asked me to write to him. So I wrote to him basically explaining everything that took place with me. But even then after um, I, was, I was wrongfully convicted in trial, I was appointed a, 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 a appellate attorneys. And like I said, even after everything was, all my appeals were exhausted, I kept on writing. Uh, I had an attorney of the name of Vivian Shevitz, uh, who was appointed to me by the uh, federal uh, district court. And even then I pleaded with her to take my case pro bono, which she did. And my case was reopened by the Manhattan district attorney's office back on, I believe it was in 2007. But um, after that, um, uh, two key factors, two people that uh, came on to take on my case that were not even attorneys at all, that did all the legwork to find all the evidence in my case, and which I have full extreme gratitude to, uh, uh, which is uh, Robert Bob, the late Robert Bob Dennison and Bill Hughes. And we're going to be talking about them in just a, a minute. Um, all right, so Barry, why don't, perfect segue, why don't you pick up on that? Who are uh, these two people that Johnny is, is praising, um, Bill Hughes and Robert Dennison? So um, it's really an incredible part of the story. So, um, and Johnny, please correct me if I get any of it wrong, but, but, but Johnny was in an acting program. Um, uh, rehabilitation through the arts while he was incarcerated. And through that program, he was introduced to Bill Hughes. And uh, they started talking. And, you know, in some substance, I'm sure Johnny said, hey, you know, I'm innocent. <laughs> but I'm sure uh, Bill Hughes heard that before. But for whatever mm -hmm. reason, well, I kind of can understand what reason it is. It's Johnny. You know, when you talk to Johnny, um, he's so forthright and it's so compelling. And um, so, you want to look into it. You want to help him. You want to figure it out. And um, so Bill started um, kind of investigating on his own. Um, and I'm not, I don't remember exactly how Bill Hughes and Bob Dennison came together. Maybe Johnny can fill it in, but let me just get this in real quick. Um, Bob Dennison was the former chief of the New York state parole board. So he certainly heard people say before I'm innocent. Um, and so for these two people to come together and really just start making phone calls, they, um, they really discovered such an important issue where there was um, a person who was originally arrested um, who was up on the uh, turnstile level. And it's kind of, I don't wanna to get too much in the weeds, but basically this person, uh, said, no, Johnny was sitting next to me. And so for Johnny to be sitting next to me, he's up on the turnstile level um, while the crime is taking place down on the platform. And so it was, it was really Bill Hughes and Bob Dennison that with this kind of investigation uncovered these really important um, facts. And, um, and then I think maybe, forgive me, Johnny, you could, or Gabe could fill in, but I think um, Bill Hughes then wrote this article that really just opened up the whole case and it really became um a really important case that that it kind of took off from there so it kind of had a life of its own to uh, write who read the where where was the write-up about the case um done that was in city limits um what was the name of the article forgive me 
the crime that changed New York City. Mm. Of course. Yes, exactly. And it was, it was very powerful. And I'm sorry, just one more thing, because Bob Dennison sure. was such an incredible man and he supported Johnny um, throughout. And um, he appeared for a deposition in our, in our case, in the civil case. Um, and, you know, it was kind of just a continuation and of what he had done for Johnny all along, you know, talk about his investigation, what he uncovered, why he thought Johnny was innocent. So he, I mean, they both were incredible, but, but um, Bob Dennison was really a wonderful man. Oh, that's, that's incredible. It's amazing how, uh, you know, one article, one person can shift the tide. And obviously that, is what happened. I, I wanted to go back to you, Johnny. Excuse me, Harriet. Harriet, yes. let me just add one thing. Oh, to go right ahead. That I think is very, very important uh, for everybody to understand and, and know that um, there are still many, many people in prison sitting that are innocent, that are still doing time, that haven't been able to prove their innocence. So the fact that I had someone like Bill Hughes and, and, and Bob Dennison to come forward. We're talking about two people that never had any experience whatsoever in investigating any wrongful convictions. And yet they took all of their time, any time is necessary that they found in their life to go look into my case, investigate my case and find the evidence in order to, to, to eventually that led to, 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 to my exoneration. Um, um, I, I don't know what you want to call it. You can call it a blessing. You can call it luck, whatever, or it was meant to be was fate, but, um, not everybody has the opportunity or blessings that I had, you know, people write to the innocence project and, and it's just DNA. They only accept cases to, uh, that's DNA. Some cases that are non DNA, they are starting to accept, uh, but it's very, very hard, very hard to find people, especially when you don't have the financial resources to hire an investigator or an attorney that's willing to take up on your case because everything is based on, you know, uh, um, um, salaries, wages, you know, who's going to pay me, who's going to hire me. And, and, and it's just sad that, um, there's not enough people that are willing to take more pro bono cases in order to help these innocent people that are still sitting in prison today. Very, very true. And as a matter of fact, um, the innocence projects in the country get thousands of letters. They, they can't keep up with the uh, amount of people asking for help. It's just, you know, it's, it's more than money. It's, it's uh, manpower, I guess you could say. So uh, that I, I certainly know. I wanted to ask you quickly uh, and then move to a different uh, aspect of your case. Um, what, what kept you going during the years of your incarceration in terms of accomplishments, setting goals for yourself? You did set some goals. Um, what were they and did you reach them? Yes, um, as uh, uh, Gary uh, basically touched on a little point, um, um, and keeping my, my hope and faith alive in prison through God, it, it, it gave me the, the strength and I would say the courage after many, many years, because I lost all of that. I lost that courage. I lost my own voice. I was afraid to speak up for myself. Uh, I only did it through writing, through letters. Um, so um, I went to college. I, I graduated with my bachelor's and my master's, and I joined a theater program. Theater program was actually a great, great tool in uh, helping me regain my voice again to 
allowed me to express myself again. You know, um, I think for, for people that are innocent specifically, um, you become voiceless. Um, you become uh, forgotten, a forgotten voice of, uh, of a society uh, uh, where you were always innocent and still are. And so the theater program allowed me to gain, regain that voice and, and, and allowed me to express myself and speak up. And uh, like Barry said, I, I met Bill Hughes there through a woman named Kim Breeden. Kim Breeden was the one that actually started this uh, domino effect. She's a very, very uh, popular uh, uh, actress who took, um, re- I don't want to use the term replaced, but um, after Julie Andrews was performing on Broadway, uh, The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, uh, Kim Breeden was the person that went on to, to perform those acts after her. And when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, Kim Breeden was asked to sing for Nelson Mandela because Kim Breeden looked and sounded mm. just like Julie Andrews. So uh, um, when I was in the rehabilitation through the arts program, um, the first first, uh, show that I was casted on to perform was West Side Story. I was casted as Tony way before Mm -hmm. I lost a lot of my hair. And I looked a little bit more like Tony back then. But um, she was my vocal coach. And it was because of her that she took an interest when she said, you know, you look different. You know, you don't seem like everybody else in here. You, uh, why are you in here? And that sparked up the reason why she went and spoke to Bill Hughes mm-hmm. and um, Bob Dennison later on, you know, an angel sent from God as well that I met inside a prison. And the two of them, like I mentioned, teamed up uh, that, that found all this evidence in my case. But um, the, the accomplishments that I, that I did in prison, they def- definitely added on to to my hope to my faith it added on the education process of what i was doing kept me busy kept me focused and definitely allowed me to still even further um uh, 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 reach out to more people uh, uh in regards to my innocence writing to several other clinics and, 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 and other attorneys to see if they were willing to take my case and i think that was one of the reasons why that Kim Breeden spoke to Bill Hughes, and when Bill Hughes came to interview me, uh, he found it so fascinating, even after in the beginning he didn't believe me, but when he started looking to my case, he found it so fascinating that everything that I was saying was absolutely true. Wonderful. All right. Now I want to switch gears a little and um, ask you, Barry, what reforms are now in place in the nation to prevent a case like this like Johnny's case from happening again? Well, I mean, probably the most important um, reform is now a lot of states do have passed laws where, where the police do have to videotape their interrogations, um, which is obviously very important. Um, I think there's also, there's just a momentum now with the innocence projects around the country and cases like Johnny's cases where it's just more um, out there and people understand it. More uh, prisoners have resources that they can reach out to and try to get help. But, you know, in terms of just police work, I mean, the read technique, which is, which is how what I was talking about earlier, which is how uh, the officers interrogated Johnny, you know, that's still used um, in this country. And in this country, 
you know, it's part of interrogation and it's part of how officers are trained to lie to people. They're allowed to lie. Um, so there hasn't been enough reforms. I do think that there's been, you know, some movement in the right direction. But I have to say, though, when I think about just day in and day out policing, um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think, I think in Europe, you know, that, that their officers are not allowed to lie. And I just think that's so critical, mm -hmm. especially with a teenager in an interrogation room and he's away from his parents and he doesn't have a lawyer and he's being told, just help us, you know, we'll just help us and we'll send you home. To be able to go ahead and lie to that kid and say, oh, I've got your friend down the hall. He just said, you know, you knew all about it. You know, it just, um, I just, I think there's still a long way to go. I, I agree. Um, Gabe, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the complaint that you and Barry filed against the city and state in 2019 and won. And is that a rare occurrence? Well, what I would say is there were a lot of things uh, against us, a raid against us when we filed the case, because this was a case that had been heavily, well, first of all, we talked about how politically explosive the case was back in the 90s, but you know, it, it was one of those things that carried through, even through the exoneration of the Central Park Five, the Manhattan District Attorney, as Johnny mentioned, conducted a, what we would what we consider a really a pro forma reinvestigation in 2007, in which the trial district attorney who had prosecuted the case was the one who was tasked by Robert Morgenthau with reinvestigating it. And so our view is that that was really not not a real, really, uh, you know, the legitimate reinvestigation. And, and so as a result, the DA's office continued to maintain that the conviction was valid, that Johnny's confession had been voluntary. And so they fought the entire process of overturning the conviction. They fought in the 440 motion when that was filed. And then when that motion was granted, they appealed uh, that grant. And, and so, you know, they, um, they had to lose that appeal unanimously. Uh, but even so, when we got into civil litigation, both the city and the state uh, were convinced uh, that, you know, they were basically parroting the position of the DA's office, that Johnny was in fact guilty. And, you know, no case is easy, but, um, you know, when you don't have uh, DNA evidence in a case like this, it creates real serious challenges because we needed to basically prove uh, that the testimony of police officers was false. And the only way that we had to do, you know, the only way that we could do that was by, you know, assiduously reviewing the record, going out and sending our investigators out to re-interview witnesses and attempting to develop the kind of evidence that would undermine the state's case. The best uh, evidence that we came up with was really the testimony of the police officers themselves, because when we were able to get them into videotape depositions, they admitted to uh, key contradictions in their testimony that really put the validity of their entire account into question. And I think there was a certain tipping point in terms of our uh, accumulation of evidence when it became clear that it was gonna be impossible for these officers to take the stand with any credibility and for any you know jury to be convinced that what they said back then was true and we had you know we had not dr kassen but we had some of the best experts in the field uh who had provided opinions that supported johnny's account and that taken together with uh, some new witnesses that had come forward and you know some 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 cracks we were able to put in the officer's account made it the case basically impossible to defend and so you know i think it i think what we did was really a blueprint for how you can successfully litigate a case like this. And I hope that other lawyers handling similar cases take a look at that and have similar success. 
absolutely. It was wonderful that you were able to come through that and win. Um, and the the sad thing is it, it won't be the last case like this, right? It certainly won't. Okay. And we're practically out of time, but Johnny, I have one last question for you. Um, briefly, what's happening in your life today, eight years post-release? Uh, well, um, I'm married. I have uh, uh, two beautiful daughters, uh, five and three. Uh, I sit on the Innocence Project's Advisory Council Board. Oh, wow. And, and um, uh, I, I, I try to help other innocent people as much as I can. I, I get people that reach out to me uh, every now and then through social media, uh, other family members, and I'm just trying to move on forward with my life. I mean, no matter um, what I do, it's still hard to put behind me what took place with me. I think I'll never, ever be able to forget that. Uh, it's something that, that's in me. It's, it's part of my memory, it, you know? Sure. Uh, but... Um, even even with my uh, uh, my compensation, uh, it, it does help. But at the end of the day, um, and I, I don't want it to sound like you know it it, it 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 it's so common to say at all. I don't want it to sound redundant. But there's no amount of money at the end of the day, kid, that can bring back the 25 years no. I was taken away for for my wrongful conviction. You know, I, I literally came every single time. Every single time, there were so many instances I came this close, this close from dying in prison. You know, yeah. again, I am grateful that I'm here alive, even speaking to you. Uh, and if it wasn't for Gabe and Barry that, that really, really uh, did so much special work in my case. That, I mean, they, they, they went it, it, through every inch of my papers and my case of, uh, uh, what they did was amazing. Just put it that way. Um, uh, 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 anybody that doesn't know about Gabe and Barry that needs someone to file a civil claim in their wrongful conviction, they definitely need to look them up, write to them, or hire them because um, these are two special attorneys. And I say this because I've met many, many attorneys throughout my experience. And I guarantee anybody out there, what happened to me, uh, there's other people that you know, have similar cases when it comes to false confessions or any type of wrongful convictions, that if you need an attorney that really wants to give you the same special type of dedication and effort in your wrongful conviction, um, you need to reach out to uh, Gabe and Barry. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we are now out of time. I thank you all so very, very much for joining me today and the last time um, to explore this case of wrongful conviction. But mostly the issue of false confessions. That's what we've been talking about for four podcasts. Um, I wanted just to tell my audience quickly, next time I will be interviewing Jeffrey Tubin, who was a legal analyst on CNN for probably about 20 years. He's written a new book called Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. So he will be my next guest um, in, uh, in the next month. Thank you for being with me, Johnny, Barry, uh, Gabriel, and I'm delighted to have you as my guest. And I'm hoping my listeners will gain a great deal of perspective about false confessions and Johnny's case. Thank you all again for listening. This is Pursuing Justice, and I'm Harriet Hendel.
See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.